When we think about the Christmas story, our minds rush to the opening chapters of Matthew and Luke. It is there that we are introduced to Mary and Joseph and the Magi. In those places of Holy Scripture, we read about the star, the stable, and the shepherd. We come across the notion and the idea of the scandalous pregnancy, the grueling journey to Bethlehem. And we hear the angels as they proclaim the good news on the hillside. When we come to the Christmas story, it is usually marked with joy and jubilation, excitement and enthusiasm. The truth of the matter is, is that we don't know much about the childhood years of Jesus, mainly because the Bible is silent. There are a couple of sovereign selfies. One occurs about a week after the birth of Jesus when Mary and Joseph take the young infant to the temple. It is there where the man named Simeon, the woman named Anna, recognize in Jesus the Christ child, for he is the one to bring salvation and redemption, not just to Israel, but to the entire world. We're given another snapshot when Jesus is about 12 years of age. Once again, he's in the temple. He is astounding, the teachers of the law, with his depth of knowledge and insight. Apart from that, there's not a whole lot told to us about the childhood years of Jesus. There is a portion of the Christmas story that's really not told that often. And I think that most people don't focus on this particular portion of Scripture because it is draped in suffering. It is overwhelmed with tragedy. It is the forgotten Christmas story. And it's to that story I want you to give your attention this morning. If you have your Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 2. I want to begin reading at verse 13. I want to conclude at verse 23. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 2, allow me to begin at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there. Until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years of age and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. 
May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. Once the Magi left, Joseph had a dream. This is not the first dream uh, that Joseph had had, whereby God sent a messenger from heaven, an angel of the Lord, to give him divine directives. No, we read in Matthew chapter 1 that once Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant and knowing that he was not the daddy's He was not the baby's daddy. And after concluding that Mary must have cheated on him and being told probably more than once, once a cheater, always a cheater, he concluded that he would divorce her quietly, which, by the way, was the most gracious thing he could have done in that culture. As to not bring shame to Mary and to Mary's family, to himself and to his own family, he decided, concluded, that he would just divorce her quietly. I think he would have gone through with it if it hadn't been for the angel who appeared to him in a dream. The angel of the Lord said to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What's conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit, for she'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Joseph woke up that next morning and he was obedient to the word of God that was given to him. In our story of Matthew chapter 2, once again, it's an angel of the Lord who gives Joseph a direct word from God. This angel comes in a dream telling Joseph to get up, take the child and his mother, go to Egypt. Stay there until I give you further direction, for Herod is seeking after that child to kill him. I don't know how many times that you've ever thought to yourself that Mary and Joseph seem to be a model of biblical marriage by God's design. But the reality is they have some of the leading characteristics. I mean, stop and think about it. We teach from the Holy Scripture that the husband is to be the spiritual leader of the home. I've had more than one man ask me throughout the years, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a spiritual leader in real tangible ways? How am I to lead my family in a way that honors God? It may be advantageous for us to take a closer look at Joseph. Joseph is described as a righteous man, which is a word that means that he really wanted to please God. He wanted to live rightly before God. He knew the Bible. He read the Holy Scripture. He did his best to live in accordance with what God told him to do. He did that more times than not. So the Bible describes him as a righteous man. He lived rightly before God. You see the evidence in Joseph's life that he was also spontaneously obedient. It would seem to me that he did not lag in his obedience. He didn't debate God. He didn't discuss the instructions from God. He just simply obeyed. He was spontaneously obedient. When the angel of the Lord gave him a word from God's holy throne, it was Joseph who immediately reacted in obedience. Now, men... We have there in the makings a pretty good definition 
of what it means to be a spiritual leader. It's a man who longs to live rightly before God and is spontaneously obedient to God. This is what we see in Joseph's life. You know, what's interesting to me is that we're not told much about the thoughts of Joseph. We're not told much about his thinking or his feeling. The only thing we're given are his actions, how he behaved. It would seem to me that God is probably more interested in the way I behave than what I think and how I feel. I mean, that's really what's important to the Lord. And in Joseph, we have an example of a righteous man, one who lived rightly before God and was spontaneously obedient to God. Men, that's a pretty good working definition of what it means to be the spiritual leader of your home. Also from the Bible, we teach that uh, the wife is to be respectfully submissive to the godly guidance of her husband. More than one woman has asked the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to be submissive? I realize that we live in the 21st century, and for some of you, it may sound like an antiquated word. It may uh, cause you to uh, well up uh, a a sense of of refusing that word as something that is so out of date and, and not relevant to who you are. Oh, but ladies, let me just remind you that the word of God is always true yesterday, today, and forevermore. It is God's very word. So consistently in the scripture, it's the Lord who says to the wife, That you are to be submissive, which means that you are to respectively submit to the godly guidance of your husband. You ask the question, what does that look like? We'll take a closer look at Mary in this story. I mean, Mary is fast asleep. Joseph wakes her up and says, I've got a word from God. The Lord spoke to me in a dream as he did previously. And this time he said that we must immediately get up and leave the country, go to Egypt, because King Herod is searching for Jesus. And if he finds him, he's going to kill him. And what's the response of Mary? She goes, packs everything, and that very night they leave the country. What does it mean to be submissive? It means that you trust God and you trust the godly leadership of your husband. That's what it means to be a submissive wife. You trust God first and foremost and you trust the godly guidance of your husband. It doesn't mean that you can't think for yourself or that you can't voice your opinions or speak your mind. Oh, no. It's not that you are just a a silent subject. No, you're very much involved in the decision-making process. But you, as a submissive wife, you trust God, and you trust the godly leadership of your husband. Now, let's just stop and think about our scenario a little bit deeper. Let it really sink into your minds. Let me ask it this way. Uh, Ladies, if tonight your husband were to wake you up and say to you, I've got a word from God. The Lord has told me that we need to pack our bags and we need to leave the country right now. Ladies, by a show of hands, how many of you would go get the suitcases? It's exactly what I thought. Most of you, I just got a holy hunch, most of you would pat him on his belly, tell him to roll back over and go back to sleep. 
And then you would roll back over and you would think to yourself, my daddy was right. That guy is an idiot. And the next morning, you'd probably wake up and you would post what a moron of a man you have because of the experiences of the previous evening. Now, most of us would think to ourselves, that, 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 this is crazy. But yet, Mary was one who trusted God. And she trusted the godly leadership of her husband. That when Joseph said, I've got a word from God, that if we don't leave tonight, then Herod and his mafia just might come knocking on our door and the expense will be the life of Jesus. I don't get the impression from the Holy Scripture that Mary and Joseph sat up in the bed and had a debate, had a discussion, had an argument. I mean, I don't think they went back and forth at each other. I think that together they just packed everything that they owned and off they went out of Israel into Egypt. Can I just speak just a moment to husbands and wives? Can I tell you something that you already know? I'll just be Captain Obvious for a moment. But every time you have an argument with your spouse, it's a waste of time. Have you discovered that? I was hoping for a heartier amen. But really, I mean, have you discovered that, that really every time you have an argument with your spouse, it's a waste of time. I mean, you, you may win the argument. You, you may think to yourself you're really scoring some points. But there's no referee in your household. There's nobody in a zebra shirt that's going to say winner or loser of the argument. At the end of the day, both of you are losers in the argument because arguing is simply a waste of valuable time. Time that you'll never get back. Time that you could have spent simply being obedient to the word of God. In Mary and Joseph, I think we find a, a, a biblical model of marriage by God's design. We have a husband who's a spiritual leader of his home. He desires to live rightly before God. He desires to spontaneously obey the word of God. And you've got Mary, who's a submissive wife. She trusts God, and she trusts the godly leadership of her husband. But even one step further, together, they lived a Christ-centered home. On three occasions in our ten verses, we are told that Joseph took the child and his mother. It's said in that order all three times, verses 13, 14, and 20. And I think that Matthew is communicating that Mary and Joseph together lived their life in a Christ-centered home. Now, I'm going to walk a tightrope, but I think it's pretty good exposition. Because when the scripture here in Matthew chapter 2 speaks of the child and his mother, it is not insinuating a child-centered home. Keep in mind who the child is. The child is Christ I think that Matthew is showing us and telling us that Mary and Joseph lived their life together as a Christ-centered home, that the decisions they made, the agendas that they had, even the travel plans that they made, all centered around what would most honor Christ. They did not have a child-centered home. You may know some families where you suspect that they have a child-centered home. You know what a child-centered home is, don't you? It's a home where everything revolves around the child. Decision-making, calendaring, finances, 
relational energy. Everything is poured into the needs and greeds of that child. The proof of this is that when that child grows and goes, the number of men and women, husbands and wives, who get a divorce once the children leave the nest is astronomical. And why is that? Simply because everything they had for 18 years was poured into that child. Every decision that was made revolved around the ball schedule, revolved around what uh, Junior needed or wanted, what Sally desired or requested, and everything revolved around that. Matthew is not showing us a child-centered home, but he is showing us a Christ-centered home. So that Mary and Joseph made decisions based upon what is best for Jesus. What would most honor Jesus? What, in this case, would most protect him? And they responded spontaneously to the word of God that was given to them. Friends, oh how I long for the families of this faith family to live 2021 as a Christ-centered home, where you think to yourself, before I make any decisions, before I put anything on the calendar, before we spend any money, before we make travel plans, we are going to ask, does this most honor Christ? Is this something that will glorify the Lord? And you actually come together, husband and wife, and you say unto God, God, you direct us and we will follow. You speak and we will listen. You give us your word and we will follow in spontaneous obedience. I think that here at the end of Matthew chapter 2, you find a model of biblical marriage by God's design. There's a husband who longs to rightly live before God and spontaneously obey God. There's a wife who is respectfully submissive to the godly guidance of her husband, and together, this husband and wife come together to have a Christ-centered home. When King Herod realized that he was outwitted by the wise guys, he was furious. He gave a decree. This decree was according to the timeline that was given to him by the Magi. For he asked them, when did you first see the star in the east? And according to those calculations, he gave this decree that all baby boys two years of age and under living in Bethlehem and its surrounding vicinity must be executed. Theologians call this the slaughter of the innocents. Archaeologists tell us that in the first century, the little town of Bethlehem probably had a population of no more than a 1,000 people. So that means that there were probably 20, maybe 30 boys under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. And by the king's decree, all those little baby toddlers were slaughtered. Can you imagine the grief, the heartbreak of those moms and dads? Can you imagine the aunts, the uncles, the cousins that simply wondered why? Why is this happening? Why did the king give the order? Why did my son have to die? He didn't do anything wrong. He did nothing to deserve this. Why did this happen? Can you imagine the sadness 
Can you imagine how the hearts of those moms and dads were pierced and punctured because their precious baby was killed? News didn't travel very quickly in those days. Jesus was raised in obscurity. Some of them may not have even known who Jesus was. And yet their child, the life was snuffed out. They thought to themselves, this child has so much promise. This child, my baby boy, has so much life ahead. And yet the king gave an order to kill my son. Can you imagine when Mary, Joseph, and Jesus went back to Bethlehem for family reunions and there was no other boy the same age as Jesus to play kickball in the streets? Can you imagine that for those couple of years there were no boys in the graduating class at Bethlehem High School? You know, when the angel proclaimed on the hillside to the shepherds, I bring you peace, good news to all men. I promise you that there were some moms and dads living in Bethlehem and its surrounding area, and they didn't feel peace. They felt chaos. They felt hostility, and they wondered why. Why did this take place? You know, every time uh, children die, our heart breaks, and rightfully so. When we, as a country, when we hear of a school shooting, we get aggravated, furious, in fact, and understandably so. When we read of a church massacre or a gunman who goes into a public place, maybe a mall, and begins to open fire, and young children's lives are taken. Every time we read of a story like that, our hearts break, and we wonder why. Why did this happen? The difference between the scenarios I just gave you and what took place in Matthew chapter 2 of the first century, scenarios I told you are illegal events and activities. What those soldiers did at the end of Matthew chapter 2 was exactly what their commander had told them to do. The king gave the decree. It was the law of the land. And the soldiers went out and they meticulously carried out the plan of the king. And they slaughtered these boys. You know, when I stop and think about it, we as a culture, we as a country, we really do have a warped sense of morality. I mean, we grieve at a school shooting, and we should. Don't misunderstand me. I mean, we need to just feel horrible for those children and, and, and for their moms and their dads. I mean, we need to be so upset whenever we hear that children's lives are snuffed out. But yet as a culture, every year, we still kill nearly a million babies in their mother's womb and we say it's okay and we say that it's legal it's the law of the land it's the right of a woman that if she wants to have an abortion she can have it and it's legal in all 50 states and we get so upset 
at a school shooting or a church massacre or a, a gunman who opens fire in a public place. And we get so upset at that, and we should. And then we turn a blind eye to nearly a million aborted babies every single year. I know those statistics just like you do, that the number of abortions in America are on the decline. Praise the Lord. But still, the most recent studies indicate that nearly a million babies are aborted every year. Statistically speaking, that's nearly 100 every hour. So before this worship hour is over, approximately 98 lives will be snuffed out. Friends, this is not a political issue. This is a biblical issue. This is an ethical issue. For the Bible teaches us, and we must affirm, that the child in the mother's womb is just as human as the child in the mother's arms. And life begins at conception. And life is a gift from God Almighty. And yet, time after time, the American culture acts like King Herod and simply turns a blind eye to unwanted pregnancies. The word of God came once again to Joseph. Joseph and Mary and Jesus were in Egypt. They had been there for quite some time. The word of God came to Joseph, and once again, Joseph is spontaneously obedient to the instructions of God, for the angel declares, it is okay, it is time for you to go back to Israel, so take the child and his mother and return. And Joseph was obedient, and he immediately left Egypt. He went back to Israel when he heard that Archelaus was now on the throne, which was the son of Herod. Archelaus was even more cruel than his old man. And Joseph was fearful. So once again, an angel of the Lord gives a word from God to Joseph. Take Jesus and his mother. Go to the northern region of Galilee, to the little town that you're familiar with, Nazareth, and raise him there. You get to the end of Matthew chapter 2, and that's it. Matthew leaves Joseph and Mary and Jesus in Nazareth. When the curtain lifts on Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is about 30 years old. He's about to begin his public ministry. We hear of John the Baptist and the baptism of John the Baptist, and we find Jesus standing on the banks of the Jordan River. But Matthew says, before I get to the public ministry of Jesus, I got to tell you the forgotten Christmas story. I got to tell you the part of the story that uh, most people just kind of push away. And beloved, when I read these 10 verses, there are two takeaways that I want to share with you. The first takeaway is this, that sometimes life with Jesus is hard. I can well imagine that there were moments when Mary and Joseph thought to themselves, maybe even said to each other, you know what, I didn't know it was going to be this difficult. I didn't know it was going to be this hard raising Jesus. You remember uh, the angel said to, to Joseph, uh, do not be afraid. There were moments when Joseph was afraid. The angel said to Mary, you are highly favored 
And I promise you, there were moments when Mary did not feel highly favored. They must have come to conclusion, you know, sometimes life with Jesus is hard. I didn't know it was going to be this difficult, they would have said to each other. I mean, we're talking about a a scandalous pregnancy, a birth in a barn. We're talking about vigilante travel. We're talking about hostility. We're talking about political upheaval. We're talking about chaos on every side. They would have said to themselves and to each other, we did not know it was going to be this difficult. Because life with Jesus sometimes is hard. Have you ever said that? Have you ever felt that? You know, being a follower of Jesus, you think to yourself, is not as easy as I anticipated. I mean, I thought it was going to be be pie in the sky. I thought it was going to be easy. I thought it was going to be simple. But you may be able to give testimony that sometimes following Jesus leads to suffering. Sometimes following Jesus leads to tragedy. Sometimes following Jesus leads to disappointment. And you think to yourself, and maybe even verbalize from time to time, life with Jesus is hard. You want to live rightly. And the world is living wrongly. You want to stand up for truth. And the world is telling you to sit down and pipe down. There are times that you know you're supposed to tame your tongue. But that's the last thing you want to do because you want to give somebody a piece of your mind and, 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 and really tell them what's on your thoughts. Sometimes life with Jesus is hard. It's at this moment that you and I have to have a robust theology of suffering because you understand that Jesus did not come to give you the easy life. He came to give you eternal life. Jesus did not come to make you happy. He came to make you holy. Jesus did not come so that you may know comfort. He came so you may know the Christ. I mean, that's why Jesus came. And just because there is presence of suffering in your life, that doesn't mean the absence of peace. Just because there's tragedy, just because there's turmoil, just because there is sickness and sadness, just because there's difficulty, that does not mean that you have no peace. Because a good, robust theology of suffering tells us that God is going to use the suffering for our good. That God is using us to fashion us into the very likeness and image of Christ. That he has a purpose to promote. For everything that God permits, he has a plan to work out. And he's going to use all things. Not just some things, not just good things, not just comfortable things. He's going to use all things for his glory and for your good. Let me say it this way. I'd rather have a hard life with Jesus than an easy life without Jesus. You remember what George Beverly Shea said? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus more than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus more than anything this world affords today. What George Beverly Shea would sing time and time again is true. I would rather have Jesus more than an easy, comfortable life. So a hard life with Jesus is always better than a life of ease without him. Because Jesus 
is our Savior. He's our Lord. And he is the one who can transform tragedy into triumph. My first takeaway is that sometimes life with Jesus is hard. Second takeaway, God is always in control. God is always in control. There's no situation, there's no scenario that somehow kicks God to the curb. God is always in control. Theologians use the word sovereign. God is sovereign. It's simply a big word that means he's in control of all things. He knows everything exhaustively well. He knows all things. He controls all things. He's in all things. He can work through all things. God is always in control. Matthew proves this on three occasions. When he speaks about how the activities that were going on in that particular scenario fulfilled Scripture. Exactly what the prophet said hundreds of years earlier. The first one is this. Hosea declared that he being the Christ, he will be my son that I call out of Egypt. Matthew understood that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses came out of Egypt. He led the children of Israel out of their Egyptian captivity, their bondage, their slavery. And Matthew knew that Jesus is the new Moses. He came to lead us out of captivity into liberation. And our captivity is not to Egypt. Our captivity is not to any nation. Our captivity is not to any uh, person on the planet. No, our captivity is to something far worse. It's to our sin. Our sin thoroughly touches and taints us, and we are held captive. We are bound by it. And Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to liberate us. Jesus came to lead us out of our own Egypt, you could say. And so Hosea was exactly right. And Matthew sees in the words of Hosea the fulfillment of what Jesus is. For out of Egypt I have called my son. The second prophetic reference is from Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, as the people of Judah were being carted off to Babylonian captivity, there is weeping in Ramah. There is weeping and mourning. And Rachel, she is crying and cannot be comforted. Matthew says that the ultimate fulfillment of that passage can be seen in the divine or in the kingly edict of Herod, as he ordered for the slaughtering of those 20 to 30 baby boys. Ramah was a city about five miles north of Jerusalem. It was through that city that the barbaric Babylonians came in and they took captive the men of Judah and they literally carted them off. They were in chain. They walked single file. They were there in Ramah. And in Ramah, as they were leaving uh, the southern kingdom of Judah on their way to Babylonian captivity, you could hear the crying of these men and their families that were either with them or left behind. And Jeremiah said, you could hear the weeping of Rachel. Who is Rachel? Rachel was a beloved wife of Jacob. She was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, those two precious children to Israel. And Rachel was crying. Rachel represents all of those moms 
who were weeping, mourning, grieving, crying because their baby boy had been slaughtered. Every mother listening to my voice, you know exactly what that would feel like. You could put yourself in that scenario that if someone were to come by edict of the government and try to seize your precious child and then seizing your child, kill your child on the spot, oh, you would grieve. There would not be enough tears in your eyes. You would mourn. You would refuse to be comforted. Because your precious baby, the one that you carried for nine months and, and delivered safely, now has been stolen from you. You know how Rachel must have felt. You know how those moms in Bethlehem must have felt. There may be more than a few people listening to my voice, whether you're here in the house or you're listening online, and you know what it is to lose a child. It's life's most vicious curveball. Children are not supposed to bury their parents. Our parents are not supposed to bury their children. Those children are supposed to bury their parents. And when you stop and think about the loss of your life, it is gut-wrenching. Matthew says that here the words of Jeremiah are fulfilled in the story of Matthew chapter 2. The last example comes at the very end in verse 23, where even the decision to go back to Israel, but not stay in the capital city of Jerusalem, not go to Bethlehem, but to go to the northern region of Galilee, to that small little town called Nazareth, even that was orchestrated by God. Because the prophet said, he being the Messiah, he will be called a Nazarene. We think to ourselves, wow, I mean, God's in control of every decision, God. God is in control of every agenda, because even the moving to Nazareth was a fulfillment of scripture. He'll be called a Nazarene. Oh, but there's something deeper than that. To be called a Nazarene was not a compliment. A Nazarene was a redneck. A Nazarene was a hick. It was somebody who was from the sticks. And be, by being called a Nazarene, it was saying that, that Jesus was being raised in poverty. Nobody's gonna listen to him. He's not gonna be known by anybody. Nobody's gonna follow him. Nobody's gonna believe in him. Why? He's a Nazarene for crying out loud. And God... God is so sovereign. He is so much in control that he says, even if you're called a Nazarene, I can still use you because I'm going to use my son, a Nazarene, and he's going to be the redeemer of all who believe. These 10 verses prove that God is always in control. And friend, that's why I came this morning. I came just to remind you, I came to tell you that God is sovereign. God is in control. God is in control of the cosmos. He's in control of our country. He's in control of this community. He's in control of the church. He's in control of your sickness. He's in control of your sadness. He's in control of every scenario in your life. He's in control of your family. He's in control of your fears. He's in control of your future. He's in control of your finances. He's in control of your cancer. He's in control of your COVID. He's in control of your heart disease. I'm here to tell you that God is in control of all things. We may not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future in his hands. We may not know what lies ahead, but we always know who has our back. We may not know the suffering that we have to endure, but we know the Savior who will, who will rescue us through it. I'm here to tell you this morning that God is always in control. Yeah. If the gospel teaches us anything, 
It teaches us that nothing is outside of the jurisdiction of God. For on that faithful Friday, Jesus stumbled through the streets. He staggered up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. There, the Roman soldiers stretched him wide. Why? Because the government had demanded the execution of Jesus. The religious leaders had demanded the execution of Jesus. And the Roman soldiers stretched him wide. They raised him high, hoisted him into the air until he died. And then they laid him low. And the disciples who had followed Jesus, who had put all their spiritual eggs in the Jesus basket, they thought Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king. He's the anointed one. And now Jesus is dead. These grown men and women wept, grieved. They mourned. They could not be comforted on Friday. They could not be comforted all day on Saturday. Even into Sunday, they could not be comforted. You could hear the weeping and the wailing of the disciples. You could see the tears that streamed down their cheeks. You can feel the agony that they must have felt because they believed that Jesus was Messiah. And now Jesus had been robbed and taken from them and placed into a borrowed grave. But early on Sunday morning, Early on Sunday morning, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Spirit, proving once and for all that our God is always in control. God is in control. God is in control. So that causes me to say that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because Jesus lives. The gospel tells me that sometimes life with Jesus is hard, but a hard life with Jesus is always better than a life of ease without him. And the gospel tells me that my God is always in control, even when it looks bleak, even when it looks terrible, even when there's storm clouds on the horizon. God is in control. We stand on the precipice of a brand new year. I don't know what's going to happen in 2021. I know that probably more than a few of you are saying goodbye and good riddance to 2020. But I don't know what 2021 holds. I can tell you this much. There's going to be some good times. There's going to be some bad times. There's going to be some moments of jubilation There'll be some moments of mourning and weeping. There'll be some success in 2021. There'll be some events that will cause you to be in despair. Listen, I I don't know what you're going to experience in 2021. I don't know what I'm going to experience in 2021. But this much I can tell you, that in 2021, sometimes life with Jesus is hard. But a life with Jesus is so much better than a life without him. And in 2021, in the midst of the sickness and the suffering, the tragedy and the turmoil, I want you to know that our God is always in control. Our God works in all things to bring about the good of his people 
those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So we are a faith family who follows hard after God because God is worth it. Jesus is our savior. We live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes life is hard. That's okay. I'd rather have Jesus in a hard life than a life of ease without him. And sometimes we may ask ourselves, God, do you know what's going on in my world? And I came to tell you that God is always in control. And this morning, if you don't know this God personally, he invites you into relationship. He says to you, come and follow me. It may not always be easy, may not always be comfortable, but I'll make you holy, Jesus says. I'll make you fit for an eternity with God. You come, follow me. If there's somebody here who does not know Jesus personally as Lord and Savior, I invite you to come the moment the first note is struck of the invitation song. If you're here today and you do know this God, you know Jesus personally, then maybe in this invitation you just need to go ahead and surrender yourself for the upcoming year and just say, Christ, I'm yours. I will follow you even if it gets hard. Because I believe that you will always be in control. And I believe that you will work all things in my life for your glory and for my good. And so this day I declare I am your property. I am yours. Maybe there are some husbands who need a desire to live rightly, spontaneously obedient to the word. Maybe there are some wives who need to respectively submit to the godly guidance of their husbands. Maybe there are some families that need to stop being child-centered and being Christ-centered. Maybe there are just some people that need to come and pray. As God leads, you respond in spontaneous obedience unto him. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Please work in this moment. Glorify yourself in this preaching hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.